that one day that you had this giant piece of chocolate cake versus your whole life. You know, it's a snapshot in time. You'll be okay. And you'll probably be better off for it in the long run if you're just like, hell yeah, I had cake and it was great. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I usually talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game. But today, you guys, I'm going to be chatting with an expert coach as we look back on season one through the lens of nutrition. Where do pros like Emily Harrington, Alex Honnold, Drew Mack, and Alex Johnson struggle in their nutrition? What have they learned? What common threads can we identify? And how the heck can that info help you and me to level up our own climbing? That is what this expert analysis episode is all about. And here to help us decode the pro's secrets is certified nutritional specialist, Caitlin Holmes. Caitlin received her MS in human nutrition and functional medicine, and she now runs a nutrition coaching business where she primarily works with climbers and outdoor enthusiasts to develop effective nutrition plans for long-term health and performance. She's also the co-host of the Average Climber podcast, which is a super fun show. It's equal parts informative and entertaining. You should check it out. I'm really psyched to dive into season one through Caitlin's eyes. She came prepared and ready to spill the tea on all things nutrition so that you and I can get the most out of our training and our climbing. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle is Fizzy Vantage. Guys, today, Caitlin and I dive into the world of nutrition and supplements, and as you're going to hear, Caitlin is a big proponent of supplementing with a high-quality protein shake, and my personal favorite is Weapons Grade Whey from Fizzy Vantage. It contains everything I need to recover faster after a workout and get stronger as I sleep. Each serving contains 21 grams of protein, including 5 grams of BCAAs and 10 grams of essential amino acids, as well as a microdose of creatine to support power recovery. You guys are going to hear Caitlin talk about how important all of this is later in the show. But how does it taste, Ryan? Friggin' awesome. Try their Strawberry Blast, French Vanilla, or Chocolate Malt Explosion. It dissolves super fast in water, and you don't get any of those nasty chunks surprising you like sometimes you have from other protein shakes. Hit that link in the show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off at FizzyVantage.com. Y'all are going to love it. Check it out, FizzyVantage.com, and use code STRUGGLE15. This episode is also sponsored by Athletic Greens. Y'all know these guys. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews and are recommended by pro athletes, including some pretty big-name climbers. Y'all, I've been taking AG1 for a while now, and I love it. I start every day by shaking a scoop into some cold water. It just feels good, and it's super easy. It supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, aging, basically all the things. And it's way cheaper than buying all kinds of supplements. I love the taste, and it's just a simple thing I can do every day to take care of myself. Check it out, y'all. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com struggle. Again, that's athleticgreens.com struggle to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And lastly, here with the shout outs and the ads. And by the way, thank you for listening to these because it's really what keeps the podcast going. And also, I really believe in these brands and these organizations that um, I've partnered with on here. So shout out to you for listening to all of these. And our last shout out here on this show is to thank the Honnold Foundation for partnering up to make The Struggle a carbon neutral show. 
Handel Foundation, I'm sure you guys have heard of. Alex Handel is, of course, the founder. They promote solar energy for a more equitable world. If you want to learn more, swing on over to handelfoundation.org. They just announced 14 amazing new grant recipients from around the world. And if you want to feel good about humanity for a minute, just check out those amazing stories. They're doing awesome work. All right, y'all, let's dive in. And just a quick note, uh, Caitlin and I touch on eating disorders just briefly during this episode. So please be mindful of that as we get ready for this nutrient-dense conversation with Caitlin Holmes. So we're recording. The levels look good. Cool, cool. I just ate a donut. Ooh, so I just had a cookie. We're crushing it. <laughs> man, we're we're so ready to go. Podcast prep. You got a car. You got a carb load before yeah. doing these podcasts. No judgment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump in. Caitlin Holmes, welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to chat. You know, before we dive into looking back at the season, I just want to um, check in with you and and. You know, you're the dirtbag nutritionist, right? You you love That's to climb. Me. You work with climbers. You work with, with uh, you know, non-climbers as well, of course. But, you know, what was it that drew you to this profession? Yeah. When I got into climbing, I I was coming from a soil science background, and I had been doing a lot of research on urban garden soils and how that impacts the food we eat. So there's always kind of been this, like, level of nutrition there. But when I started climbing, I I really just felt like I was at a loss. I was really confused. I was training. I didn't feel like I was getting stronger. And, you know, this is not my first sport, I definitely would say, but I I found that what was lacking for me was nutrition. And a lot of the people I talked to had the same concerns and I was like, you know what? I love nutrition. I love this climbing community. And I, I wanted to see how I could further help people. And in in this specific community, I felt that there just needed to be more of us, more people who were talking about nutrition and engaging with that in the climbing sphere. So that's, yeah, ultimately what got me into it is just love of climbing people and wanting to help people feel better. Well, that's great. Uh, we need it. So I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to dive in. But first, as a climber, I want to ask you the same question that I ask all of our guests here on the show. And that's what struggle means to you. What, how do you view struggle as a climber, Caitlin? I I had to kind of think about this when, you know, we, I was listening to all of the episodes and I was like, oh no, if Ryan asks me this. <laughs> but I think it was Emily Harrington. She said, it's like kind of climbing as a whole. It's a struggle. Uh, so I was like, yep, mm -hmm, that resonates. But for me, I think more specifically, a struggle is something that is presently a challenge, but maybe won't be forever. So to struggle through something is potentially to face it head on. That's That's been my journey with it. <laughs> yeah. And so what's that relationship like for you? Is that something that, you know, you've embraced that you look forward to? I think it has evolved. I wouldn't say I look forward to struggling. I mean, I like challenging myself. I think we all kind of do. That's why we get into the sport. But 
I think it's it's something that I kind of like brace myself for. And that's also why I'm trying a lot of different things more often. Like I'm trying not to do the same thing all the time because then it does get boring. Now, what about in the area of nutrition in general? I mean, you're you're a nutritionist, you're a trained nutritionist. The assumption <laughs> might be that, you know, you don't struggle in nutrition oh, because yeah. you got it all figured out. Um, but is that true? And and if not, where have you struggled or where do you struggle in nutrition specifically? I have definitely struggled in nutrition. And I would say my personal journey with nutrition has certainly been a mix of up and downs. But as I mentioned, you know, climbing's not my first passion sport. My first one was ballet, actually. I, I thought that I would be a professional ballerina. So that had its own challenges with diet, body image. I, I struggled with an eating disorder for most of my young adult life. And I, I think nutrition for me is what saved me in a sense and gave me that mindset of, okay, if I want to do this and feel good, I need to actually fuel and nourish my body. And coming at climbing from that perspective, I think, was something that was a little bit lost. I had to refine that mindset because climbing as this individualized sport, you know, same thing with ballet too. I had to get through some of those negative behaviors and mindsets again and and work through some of that, you know, later is better rhetoric that we hear a lot about. So for me personally, that struggle has come up again and again. And Despite being trained in this profession, there's still a lot that I'm trying to, you know, kind of like shush myself on, especially while working with people. But I feel like in this profession, it's helped me heal a lot. Just hearing so many other people struggling with it, you're just like, wow, OK, I'm not alone. There's so many people who experience this and we just don't talk about it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um with us. It is interesting, our, our sport. You know, how how do you, just in a general sense, how do you see the sport of rock climbing going with regard to body image or with regard to these assumptions about, you know, lighter is better, strength to weight ratio, these these kinds of things that, mm -hmm. you know, that come up often. Um, have you noticed a, a trend one way or the other? I think people have come around to the idea that, okay, maybe weight loss shouldn't be the goal. I've seen it shift more towards body composition, which I, I think in a lot of other sports, that's something that is talked about maybe more regularly. So I, I think it is evolving in our sport. We're becoming, I don't know if, if the right word is more mainstream, but I think that's maybe helping push that conversation along where people are saying, hey, you know, we we have this big sport. We have a lot of kids in this sport. And what can we be doing to change that conversation? I've had a lot of coaches of teams reach out and be like, what do I do? Who do I talk to? I just want to make sure kids are supported. And so I think that's becoming more and more normal now. And I think that'll continue to happen as the discussion just continues, expands. I think athletes talking about their experiences definitely helps get it out there because people don't, you know, they, they experience it alone. They don't want to talk about it because they think they're the only ones. And so when you realize, oh, OK, this is something else that's going on, you may not necessarily be ready to seek help or talk about it. 
But I think it's important to have that that open line of communication and just the the confidence knowing that, okay, other people are experiencing this. Maybe there's something that I can do to also, you know, get through it, overcome it, or just, you know, have a better relationship to food in my body as well. Yeah, I love that. that that's just great to hear that um, those are some of the conversations that you're having. And um, I'm, I'm excited now. You know, let's, let's dive in. We've, we're devoting an entire episode here to nutrition, to what we can learn from where these 10 elite climbers have struggled, and then how the rest of us can apply that to our own nutrition, to our own climbing, to our own performance. So, um, you know, one thing before I guess we, we do fully dive in here is, is it's kind of worth noting that nutrition is highly individualized, right? And, you know, and it goes beyond climbing. I mean, it's it's a lifestyle and nutrition just is kind of like through every part of our lives. Yeah, I it's interesting because I think people kind of accept, OK, training, it's one, two, maybe three hours a day. I think that's so easily managed as like, oh, this is one, you know, singular time point in my day. But nutrition as a whole is like, every single day. It's not a singular time point that you can go into, focus up, and then leave. And then I think there's just a lot of confusion out there. And so people just kind of like go through the motions of nutrition. And also it is so individualized, but then people have so many opinions about it. So if you do one thing, you're like, I'm scared people are going to judge me. Or Hmm. it's like, I think there's a lot of that heavy diet culture, pop nutrition, whatever you want to call it, that influence there where people feel a lot of shame and guilt and it becomes this really intimate issue for a lot of people. But I, I'm i finding that people are more open to talking about it, especially if I just ask a question like, tell me more about your nutrition. And it's like everything opens up and everything they've ever thought about food just comes out and they're like, I'm so sorry for the TMI. And I'm like, tell me more. I want to know that. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, Let's look big picture for a second. Looking Mm -hmm. back at these 10 interviews with these 10 incredible climbers, boulderers to big wall climbers to sport climbers, men, women from 20s to 60s, uh, you know, they really they really represent a pretty yeah, wide net. I love the diversity of sample size. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a, as wide as it can kind of get here. Um, mm-hmm. From your seat, what are your big thoughts, your big takeaways? What really jumped out at you kind of uh, on a whole? Yeah, I think if we look back at these athletes and, you know, they they have all of their own things that they've worked through nutritionally. But that initial lack of awareness is something that I I think I heard you know, in some way or another talked about. It's like the what, when, why, how much, uh, and just finding the time to actually sit down and plan, knowing where to start. That, that's what stood out for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I noticed that as well. I, almost all of them said at one point in time, like, oh, I just didn't really know what nutrition was, right. you know, like I just grew up in the Midwest and we had Mountain Dew for every meal or, yep. you know, Alex Johnson was talking about like trying to get protein by getting fish fillet sandwiches <laughs> after going to the gym. Right. You know, it's like, it's super relatable, kind of like we're kind of all in that same boat. You know, at some point in time, we go from just being raised and eating whatever it was that our family gave us to being an adult. And we're like, oh, shit, I'm an adult now. I have to figure out how to feed myself. Yeah, I think there's like a lot of 
black and white thinking and it becomes this horribly confusing topic. And especially I know I said pop nutrition, but it's it's, you know, kind of what it what it's like. It's a game of telephone tag, essentially. You know, you you say you hear a friend that they say, hey, I heard Alex Magos doesn't eat meat anymore because it made him sweat. And then the last person who hears this in the chain thinks, oh, eating meat will cause me to be a bad climber. So I think it's just right. like we hear these things and then we might put that in our toolbox of, oh, yeah, that maybe that's something that'll work for me. So we're always kind of finding that the missing puzzle piece. There's no real education there. And there's so many talking heads in the the sphere of nutrition that it's really hard to know you know what should i tune out (laughs) what's real yeah that's that like that signal to noise ratio is is really um challenging in nutrition for whatever reason i guess because it plays on our psychology maybe Mm -hmm. more so Mm -hmm. than other aspects you know training trainings like get stronger do this get stronger do that and this is like right do you want to be attractive to a person that you want to live with for the rest of your life you know like i mean it like really cuts to like the core of like self-worth and these kinds of things and and so like that's hard to combat sometimes yeah like the sex appeal of nutrition is very different than just training i don't think people realize that there's like not this perfect diet that someone knows and just isn't telling us it's it's very individualized like like training in that sense but maybe a little bit less focused on that single time point in our days and our weeks months whatever it's just as a whole I think we're always searching for something that maybe we already have the answer to which is kind of funny to say (laughs) yeah well good reveal the answer that we already know so It's so Yoda. Serious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is very. This is very the force all of a sudden. Um, cool. Well, let's dive in. Let's yeah. let's get specific with some of these athletes and and not only try to learn from their struggles and and what they've learned from that, but also we'll get into application mm-hmm. and how we, the average climbers, plug for your podcast, uh, can <laughs> take some practical uh, takeaways from from what we're talking about today. So. You know, why don't we kick it off with our first guest from the season, Emily Harrington. Uh, let's listen to what she had to say uh, about how she thinks about fueling when she's out doing a big climb. Ultra runners don't eat healthy on the day of a race. They just eat what they can to, like, keep them going. And, like, that day, it doesn't matter that you eat Cheetos. It doesn't matter that you eat candy. Like, you're going to burn it off in, like, 30 minutes anyway. So... All that matters is that you're constantly putting something into your body and whatever you can handle is what you should have. So she was talking about specifically fueling during her big push, Mm -hmm. you know, climbing Golden Gate in a day. And I wonder if that's something that we can apply to just, you know, us weekend warriors when we're going out, we're going to spend six or seven hours, you know, at the crag working sport routes or boulders or, or whatever. How much do we have to worry about or or should we even think about ingesting kind of the quote unquote right things, you know, like whatever, like a handful of spinach and some nuts versus like what Emily's saying, which is just eat whatever sounds good or feels good to keep you going. Yeah, I was so glad that Emily talked about this because it's something that I feel like I'm constantly like fighting against. It's, It's like the clean eating culture, right, where people are like, well, you can't eat this gummy while you're out climbing because it's not healthy. But I think what we forget is you have 
basic nutrition and then you have sports nutrition. There's, you know, sort of an overlap, but for sports nutrition, the goal is to support exercise physiology. So if we're trying to push our limits and pump out some power moves or, you know, go the distance and feel good, that gummy bear, gummy worm, super sugary snack is going to be more of an asset than like clean eating would be, especially because I don't know about you, but if somebody's like, here's a bucket of brown rice to eat before you climb versus a bag of gummy worms, I know what I'm going to choose. <laughs> so I think it it really is important to make that distinction because we could definitely apply that to just basic training or climbing. It doesn't have to be health or lack of health. It's just this is quick fuel. These sugary snacks provide very quickly digestible resources for our bodies. And we can use that as an asset. Yes, gummy worms are an asset. We, we heard it here first. Um, I'm really psyched to hear that because I love my gummies. I just, you know, like in general, I do like to fuel at the crag where I'm just eating. I mean, maybe it's like dried fruit or something like that, but sometimes it's a bunch of M&Ms. Um, and so I dig that. And I think that makes sense where we need like fast carbs or, you know, these these sugars that easily convert to energy when we're going for like our next go, our next attempt. But let, let's contrast that with then what everyday nutrition is like, right? Because we're not always in a performance state. We can't always just like crush candy because we're about to try some super hard route. We, we need to essentially have like this foundation of good nutrition, I'm assuming, that then allows us to go out there and um, tweak things in order to give like really big efforts or fuel when we're out climbing. So um, yeah, let's let's take a look at that, you know, kind of the daily nutrition of things and how you look at that. Yeah, I, I think overall, well, for me, basic nutrition is that everyday approach. And I think that where you can get a little bit more specific around training is with nutrient timing. And that for me is like the training of the nutrition world because you can use time points before, during, and after your workouts as kind of like your, you know, your your timing for eating, when to eat carbs, how much, and why. But then the bigger picture, yeah, every single day is for me, I, I really like to emphasize consistency, calories spread throughout the day, you know, not saving, I'm quoting right now, saving up your calories to one meal at the very end of the day. But I think that starting off with that sort of like consistency and balance is usually where I start with most people I work with, because I think that's where there's a lot of confusion or room to improve, basically. And and where do sweets fit in with that equation then? And I'm I'm asking because like that's my struggle. Um, you know, more so than anything else. I'm I'm vegetarian. I think I eat like a really good, healthy, overall kind of balanced diet. Um, you know, I eat throughout the day and um I don't seem to overconsume. Um so but for me, like sugar sweets, treats, especially donuts, as we've talked about, like those are the things that call to me. And you know, I, I kind of recall um, Alex Honnold talking about how, you know, his weight always stays super consistently, but when he does see it tick up by a few pounds or whatever, it's it's when he's 
adding a lot of desserts to his diet. And so he cuts those out and he gets back to what he says is like full fighting weight. And so, you know, I'm not hyper obsessed with my weight, but if I've got like a big performance phase coming up and, and I want to lose a little bit of the dad belly, then, you know, maybe I, I, I do become a little bit more aware of how much sweet treats and desserts and that kind of thing I'm taking in. But I'm wondering if that's the right mindset or, you know, what your perspective is on, you know, that element of diet, basically desserts, sweets, you know, those kinds of things. I am actually so glad that you brought this up because I was hoping we would talk about it. Usually when someone comes to me and they say, oh, my biggest problem is I'm obsessed with sugar. I'm addicted to sugar. And, you know, people will always ask me about those studies where it's like the addiction center in your brain. And I'm just like, okay, well, let's back up a second. What about sugar is, you know, so lust worthy for you? Like, why, why is it this thing that is like the focus, the center of your world that you can't get out of your head? And more often than not, we figure out that it's because they've eliminated sugar for so long and they have this label of bad stamped on these foods. So it's like I could literally compare them, you know, say, okay, let's put this in a list. Let's put your bad foods on the left. Let's put your, you know, quote, good foods on the right. And the foods on the left are all these sugary foods or, you know, sweets and treats. And then on the right is like potatoes, sweet potatoes, usually not white potatoes, <laughs> kale and like really classically healthy, clean eating foods. And I think for me, maybe it's it just comes down to the fact that we think these foods aren't good for us. So we're constantly trying to not eat them. And we don't keep them in the house. And when we do finally have them, we might overindulge or feel like we're binging on them. And then we have this guilt cycle with it. So it may not even just be that this food is something that we can't have around because we're addicted to it. It may just be that we have this conditioned relationship to it where we're like, fighting it constantly instead of just having it occasionally and having this relationship with it that's like, oh, occasionally I eat this. I try to think about that in the context of, okay, well, why am I craving this? Have I honestly had enough today to feel like to fuel my body, but also feel good? And if the answer is no, you know, go have something that feels nourishing and satiating. And then if I still want the thing that I'm craving, totally go have it. I think that's the balance that we often forget about. It's like all or nothing. <laughs> yeah, just um, I like that understanding that there is a gray area here and also that our body might be craving this thing. You know, there, there's there's some reason that we're having this craving. It could be as simple as just we haven't had enough calories or carbs that day, or it could be um, something emotional, you know, we're stressed at work or, or um, you know, some other factor that's playing into it. So so what do you do in that scenario? I mean, obviously, there's a scenario where if you're just craving chocolate cake and you have like a nice healthy salad and you're still craving chocolate cake, then hell yeah, let's go crush some chocolate cake. I love that scenario. Big fan of that scenario. But what about in, you know, like the other scenario where like you're feeling that, but you really don't want to, you don't maybe want to give into that impulse or you'll you're just going to feel bad afterwards because you've had a lot of chocolate cake 
the, you know, leading up to that or, or whatever it is, you know, we want to have some more self-control. Are, are there foods that you recommend substituting in that scenario or, or how do you handle cravings like that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because I think we're, we're so conditioned to just like full speed ahead and then we do like a backflip into guilt and then it's like this spiral. But I think more often than not, I do typically suggest, you know, if, if you're craving something, but you're feeling sort of at odds with that craving, you know, if you haven't quite made peace with that, think about earlier in the day, think about your overall nutrition, what maybe you haven't had enough of today. Did you skip breakfast or lunch? Did you have a really hard workout and you forgot to have a snack afterwards? Or, you know, starting to think more about that, uh, your sleep, did you sleep terribly the night before and that's affecting how you feel today? Did you have a fight with your partner or friend or family member? Like you said, is work stressful? And in that context, if you're at least acknowledging why you might be craving something, that can help guide you in your next step. So you know, like I said, if if nutritionally you feel like you're lacking something that day, maybe go have that meal you missed or a snack that is satiating and nourishing to you. And then if you're still craving that thing, totally have it. Like it's it's okay. And I also try to talk about that singular time point versus, you know, your whole life, that one day that you had this giant piece of chocolate cake versus your whole life. You know, it's a snapshot in time. You'll be okay. And you'll probably be better off for it in the long run if you're just like, hell yeah, I had cake and it was great. (laughs) But I don't think that these foods are going to completely derail you, your goals and your, you know, bottom line, your, your climbing or whatever active pursuits you have. Yeah, well, I know somebody um, besides myself that's going to be really psyched at that advice, and that's um, our buddy Drew Mack, who um, really likes uh, a sweet treat as well. Let's let's hear what he had to say when he calls upon the Frosty. Sometimes I get, you know, a chocolate Frosty when I send or when I don't send, you know, it's like, uh, like it's either because I'm happy or it's a sad Frosty or a happy Frosty, you know? Um, and I'm mostly, I don't do that very regularly, but, you know, I'm just trying to, um, I just be thoughtful of it. Um, but not also like live by, um, restrictions. I love Drew and and I love a frosty and a, and a happy frosty and a sad frosty. But I, I, you know, I think it's interesting what you brought up there. Um, just before we, we heard from Drew, which was you, you mentioned this snapshot in time, right? It's just a moment. And you know, that, I oh God, that really resonated for me because I tend to think not huge picture when it comes to these kinds of things. Like, it's almost like a, like a trade-off, you know, like, oh, I just had a donut. I better go jog or, you know, do a bunch of pull-ups if I want to burn that off, right? Quote, unquote. But you're saying, you know, in the scheme of things, what's a donut? What's 400 calories? And, um, you know, Drew is kind of just saying that right there, I, I think as well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm interested in hearing just a little bit more from you on that. Well, let me let me give you this example. Would you feel that, and this doesn't have to be directly geared towards you, but say we have that 400-calorie Frosty versus a 400-calorie, you know, 
I don't eight or ten ounce piece of chicken or steak. That's a lot of food. <laughs> but would you feel that you need to earn or burn off the steak or chicken versus mm. like a frosty? Like do I don't I don't think like that. And I don't no, know if anyone good... else does. <laughs> yeah, I like that perspective. You know, I think I just as with all things, we we kind of we want to struggle in some sense. We want to be martyrs and and be absolutist with maybe our diets and the things that we do, our training, you know, climbers can have that type of personality. I certainly do. But just giving us our, ourselves that permission to um, look at the long game, like how much am I going to exercise over the course of the year? Um, maybe that'll help to alleviate, you know, just like relaxing and having some treats here and there. Um, and, you know, that kind of brings up alcohol as well, um, because I think those can be wrapped up in in a certain thing. Of course, alcohol has um, a, a, a other effects on the body with regard to recovery and that kind of thing that maybe um, other sweet treats don't. But um, yeah, I want to talk about that for a little bit. I know you did a whole podcast on this not too long ago. And Alex Johnson specifically brought up alcohol. And l let's hear what she had to say on that. So I would go to the gym and have these like amazing sessions and like totally bust ass and work really hard and see a bunch of gains and then go out with friends for the night and like get a little drunk. And then the next day just feel like garbage. For me, it wasn't even like the next day hangover. It was just like the next few days of not feeling like I could push myself or like work as hard as I wanted to. And then therefore didn't think that I would be able to see the gains that I wanted to see. Yeah, I think alcohol's it's a bit tricky because I don't want to have an absolute, you know, statement about it saying like, well, if you're trying to climb, you probably shouldn't drink because I don't I don't think keeping it that again, I like gray area. It's very important to me. <laughs> and I think it depends on the person, too, and how they genetically might metabolize alcohol differently than other people. But ultimately, what's important to know about alcohol is that yeah, it's it's non-nutritive. So when you consume it, you're not getting any nutrition or performance benefits. So it's like, oh, it kind of sucks. It might displace other nutrients coming in. So if you have a send beer right when you get back to the car and you're like, oh, I'm kind of full and you push off dinner for, you know, the next four hours because of that, you might be sort of like combating your recovery um capabilities. And then alcohol can also cause hypoglycemia. So that could affect your how your body is taking up carbs for energy the next day or so. Like, there's a lot there, but it is cool to hear an athlete talk about it in that light of saying, you know, I, I tried taking it out and I still have some, but it works well for me to not have it because I think there, you know, it is something again to experiment with and I think if you are trying to push your limits and you know that there's a project in mind, either the next day, a couple days later, or you have a big comp or tournament coming up, alcohol could be something you want to avoid just because the effects are are pretty pronounced, truthfully. So again, everyone's different, but yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to climb on a hangover. No. Been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. Won't do it again. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is good. It's good to 
you know, hear from elite athletes where they've been struggling and, and what they've learned from this. And so before we shift gears and, and talk about direct application, how the rest of us can apply some of these concepts to help level up our performance and our training, was there anybody else from the season um, that you wanted to talk about that I haven't touched on so far? Well, there's one quote, and maybe this won't surprise you. <laughs> uh, the quote from Alex Honnold about, uh, you know, that small percent for performance. Ah, uh, yes. Let me grab that quote real quick. I know what you're talking about. My thing with nutrition is I'm like, obviously nutrition matters for a long-term healthy lifestyle, like not dying of heart disease, things like that. But I think for performance, nutrition adds such a small percentage. It's like, if you nail your nutrition, you nail all that stuff, you can maybe eke out a couple extra percent. And realistically, I think that the best gains you see from nutrition are more if it contributes to you not getting sick as much. Basically, if you feel a little more energized and, and you get sick even one or two fewer times a year, then you wind up seeing long-term gains from that. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I disagree with <laughs> some, some of the statement. Of course, I, I don't know Alex on a personal level. I've never treated him or worked with him, but I, I think he might be someone who hasn't necessarily struggled in terms of nutrition for performance. And maybe that's why he might feel it's not something that on a personal level is, you know, a, a performance make or break. And maybe nutrition hasn't been a barrier there, meaning he has a flexible and intuitive approach and maybe uses it as a means to an end. But I would argue that most people I work with get hung up on calories or they don't even know where to start for basic overall health. And I I also would argue that I think nutrition is more than a small percentage. Like for some, sure, maybe it's a 1% gain. But for others, it could be, you know, 80% gain. Maybe they see a big benefit um, and they do struggle with nutrition. So it can make a big difference. But whether it's 1% more or 80% more, is that percent really something that we're going to like stick our noses up at? I think it's it is something that can be used as a tool and it might be that missing key for even the elite athletes who are doing everything right, but maybe that one project, that one nemesis isn't going down. And if they tweak their nutrition, their nutrient timing, just that 1%, maybe that's enough to kind of push them over that edge. Yeah, right. I think understanding that baseline is super important. And, you know, in Alex's case, in the nutrition chapter of our interview, you know, he, he it's clear that he uh, takes his personal nutrition pretty seriously. Um, he's mostly vegetarian. He eats a lot of whole foods. Um, he's very mindful of his sugar intake. And so, you know, at that point, you're right, maybe it's a couple percent if he were to try to level it up even further from there. But it sounds like he's already doing so much that many of us aren't that, you know, there's low hanging fruit for a lot of us. So I, th I think that's a good point. You know, the last thing I'd like to ask you about here is on supplements. And that kind of goes along with it. Like, essentially, if we're eating fairly well, but we want to try to add a little extra boost, maybe it's protein or collagen or some of these other things um, that are popular amongst climbers that I certainly use myself. 
where do you stand on supplements and, and where do you feel there's real opportunity? So I like food first and supplements mm-hmm. are exactly as their name entails, supplemental. So <laughs> that is, that's typically my approach. And I do honestly like supplements and I think there are some really great supplements out there. The ones that I really value and I recommend uh, to, you know, some people if they want to try something and also that have great high quality studies uh, that show that they're safe and effective. That's, of course, protein powder, creatine. Those seem to be the big two. Um, Pre-workout sometimes is up on that list. But ultimately, where I think supplements fit in for me, for athletes, is what works for them. If you can't, like, say supplements are a bit out of reach financially, then they're not right for you. Or mm-hmm. you, you know, you want to choose one and you want to have, you have a specific goal in mind, let's say. Maybe you want to add strength and also have just a little bit more performance, more power. You might try creatine and then you could try something else. There's always going to be more research coming out, but it bottom line, you know, if it works for you and it feels good for you as an adjunct support tool in your diet, then that's great. Totally supportive. <laughs> yeah, cool. And, and you know, you touched specifically on protein there, and I think that's worth diving into a little bit more because I think pretty much every athlete I spoke with in the nutrition chapters spoke about protein, about either supplementing with protein or focusing on certain foods that give them the protein they need to properly recover or build muscle. And it's just like the kind of everlasting hot topic amongst climbers. So um, would love to get your thoughts on protein as it applies to all of us, us average climbers. So I take the stance that a lot of people could be getting more. I do think protein is one of those macros that we hear a lot about, but people don't really know where to start and why people talk about it so much. And I I know we're, you know, the audience is not just in the U.S., but in the U.S., the recommendation is is currently not enough. So what I typically recommend is somewhere between 1.4 grams of protein per kilogram body weight up to two grams of protein per kilogram body weight. I I think for a lot of people that ends up being about 100 to 150 grams per day. So it, it's not like as extreme as you might think. So <laughs> it's not as if I'm saying, you know, two grams of protein per pound body weight. It's not what I'm saying. It's just, I think, making sure that you are getting enough if you are trying to push that, you know, that your power, but also if you're in that active building phase, recovering from injuries. I I really value protein. And I know we haven't talked about high quality protein, but there's there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> yeah, well, well, let's talk about it for, for a second. I think maybe even before exploring high quality versus lower quality protein is really trying to understand where we're at. Where are we currently at? And I did this about a year ago and not in a scientific way. I essentially just used the notes app on my phone and I wrote down everything that I ate for a week and um, added its calories in one column and its protein in a column. Those were kind of the two major things I wanted to track just to see like essentially how much I was taking in 
um, for, for those two buckets. And, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but I put a lot of focus on a lot of high quality, higher protein foods, high protein pastas, you know, lentil pastas, that kind of thing beyond meat burgers, you know, things that, that really pack a protein punch. I eat a lot of eggs. Um, but I was very surprised after tracking it that I was coming in at around 75 or 80 grams of protein pretty much every day, which was low, you know, anywhere between 20, 30 grams of protein low, like a, like a full meal, essentially. Um, and so, you know, that was an easy fix, actually. I just, I added a 20 gram protein shake in the afternoon, you know, typically after a workout or just to fill the gap between lunch and dinner. And that got me about to where I was going. So, um, you know, first I had to understand where I was, where I wanted to go, and then how to bridge that gap. So I used a protein shake, but would love to hear from you, you know, what's high quality? What are our options there? Right. Yeah. I I think tracking is a good thing to try and not as, you know, a a way to restrict or have some arbitrary, you know, like stopping point. I more so like it as an information tool and something you can refer back to, like you said, where you were tracking just to make sure you were getting enough, see where you were naturally falling, and then thinking about the way that you could increase protein. And I am right there with you. Protein shakes, I recommend them because they are high quality. They're, you know, a lot of them are created equal these days. Some flavors, not so much, but that's an aside. <laughs> And I think for me, having something that simple and convenient to turn to is the best thing for us athletes because we're already so busy. You're not going to sit there and eat like, you know, a turkey drumstick when you're <laughs> just like, oh, I'm 30 grams shy. Like, right. I think having this is easier. And in terms of high quality protein versus not high quality protein, the goal is you want your proteins to have all of your essential amino acids. Those are the amino acids our bodies don't produce. And we need those to be consumed from the foods that we eat. So those complete sources are, you know, your classic meats and poultry, seafood, dairy products, eggs. And then the sort of the downside of plant-based protein is there really isn't one that is complete. So... Mm. That's where we get complementary proteins. I know you and I talked about this during our consult, but having the kind of like the pairing of grains with beans or grains and beans with nuts and seeds and just making sure that you have these complements where one protein, one plant-based protein is low in an amino acid while the other is high and vice versa. Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I love that. And I think that simple enough for for a dummy like me to even be able to follow. So I appreciate that. Um, what about fad diets? And uh, I know we could do an entire episode on this, uh, but we don't have the time. So I'm going to ask you to make some pretty gross generalizations here, which I know you hate doing, but um, what fad diets have you come across? I mean, this could be anything from keto to intermittent fasting. There's so much that kind of come in and out. They're pop diets, I think, as you as you call them. Um, what are your feelings? What's jumping out at you in that world right now? The thing I struggle with, <laughs> with diets, uh, <laughs> is I think a lot of them tend to be restrictive or basically what they're selling 
as like a, you know, try this diet. What that's selling is some version of success or way to look or, you know, yada, yada, like kind of the extension of of that maybe body image goal. But I think for me, a lot of these diets just don't support most people. And I mean, if we think about keto, that diet was primarily used for individuals with epilepsy and certain types of cancers. So hmm. why have we then used that in our sphere to think, you know, like, oh, well, it'll help me lose weight. Is that really the only goal that we have with our diets? Like, is it really, is it just that means to an end? Is it not just everything else? And I think a lot of these things, I mean, like even carnivore, you're cutting out massive nutrients in the diet. Keto as well, cutting out carbs. You're just missing the important nutrients from a well-balanced diet. And I think that it's it's a shame that, you know, maybe it's it's applied so heavily in in the athletic scope. And I'm not saying that certain diets don't work for certain athletes for a number of reasons. There are exceptions to that rule. And the like I would say if there were a diet that I think does work and isn't as, you know, like much of a fad diet for me is vegan, vegetarian, and probably Mediterranean. I know there's some mm. balance in there, but those provide the most flexibility. You can certainly be a vegan or vegetarian and get all of the nutrients that you do need. It just might take a little bit of effort and it still may not work for some people. Like for me, I was a vegan for four years and I just could not get my vitamin B12 up even with injections. It just, my body mm. didn't like it, wasn't working. And so, you know, you can do all the right things, but maybe it's it's still not the right approach for you. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think we don't have to make these decisions in a vacuum, right? right? We don't have to read totally. an article and be like, that's the way I have to do it. You can actually like <laughs> right. you can become educated and then you yeah. can talk to somebody who actually, you know, has an educational background on these things. Yeah, and there are a lot of us out there who can support you and can help you figure out kind of like the the answers to your questions a lot faster and with more confidence, you know, building up that awareness, essentially just giving you tools in the tool chest without you having to like try all of these different diets and eventually figure out, okay, that doesn't work next. And it just kind of stops that vicious cycle of trial and error spirals. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and while I have you here at my disposal as as my personal nutritionist for a minute here at least, um, I'd like to use myself as a case example on a subject that might be a little bit of a third rail, and and that's just like losing some weight, cutting some weight for a performance phase or cycle. And I understand that this is so highly individualized and can come with a lot of um, history and challenges and struggle, whether it's body image or, you know, disordered eating and these kinds of things. And so rather than cast a general net, um, let's just look at kind of my personal scenario here. And this fall, my plan is to attempt my first 13A. And that's, you know, maybe a bit of a long shot because I've only climbed up to 12C, but, you know, working hard. And I think maybe um, as that time approaches, I might want to take a look at my weight and my body composition and see if there's areas to improve. I'm a 42-year-old dad with a couple of jobs 
Um, I'm in decent shape, but you know, I mean, I've got that little bit of a dad belly there. And so um, I would like your thoughts and any recommendations you might have on a good way to try to really dial things in for like a specific time. Maybe it's just like a couple week window. Yeah, I I think it's it's a topic that, of course, we hear a lot about, right? And I think recently it's more so along the lines of pushing back against that lighter is better concept. But I think what we forget to talk about, or maybe we omit intentionally these days, but I think it is it is important to mention that a lot of athletes in a lot of different sports do have maybe a, a preferred performance weight, or let's call it performance body composition. Because for a lot of athletes, that could be higher weight. You know, maybe they haven't trained and then they start training and they put on muscle mass. So it depends on the athlete. And I think that if it's something that does feel good for you, the the most important thing to remember is that you don't want to all of a sudden get to a month before season and decide, okay, time to lose my, you know, five pounds of summer weight I put on and start heavily training. I think that would be a mistake and would certainly open you up to a lot of injuries and could potentially become just frustrating ultimately. Like you you won't have the energy to push your limit if you don't have enough energy coming in. So I I typically would suggest if you have that like pre, almost a pre-pre-season <laughs> and where you're still maintaining, you're still living your life, eating donuts, maybe you're you're still drinking beer, you're still, you know, not quite in the season mindset where you maybe are making changes during that time frame. But maybe that's when you, you know, instead of going full-blown, I don't care, you kind of keep it just a little bit more balanced and you you take that slow approach where maybe it's like every month it's like very slow weight changes or one less beer every day or you know like little little things like that that when it does come time to really show up for performance you have still energy coming in for you know your training Maybe your diet becomes a little bit more dialed in and specific to support that training. But I don't think there needs to be this, you know, big restrictive period because I, I've seen it many times where athletes will be like, oh, well, I'm about to start, you know, climbing outside for the fall and all of a sudden I want to drop five pounds. So I'm going to do keto for a month and then they get injured. And it's like, oh, my God, Mm -hmm. how many times do you have to do that before you learn? It don't work. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, injury prevention there, that's a really interesting lens to look at it through. And it does make sense now that you mentioned it, because in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to relax and have a super fun summer. And then come fall, you know, early fall, I'm going to dial up the training, cut my weight a little bit, and then get out there and and try to perform in November. But I think you make a really valid point there where if I'm simultaneously dialing up my training and cutting the calories, the fuel, the recovery that I'm bringing into my body, that you're saying essentially could be a a recipe for injury. Yeah. I I mean, injury overall just 
feeling terrible, like not great about yourself or what you're doing. And it's it's kind of like if you ever knew anyone who was in like body competitions and they like drink a teeny sippy cup of water all day and they don't eat the week before and then they binge the whole week after that's a lot of stress on the body as well so wouldn't you rather enjoy those treats occasionally along the way than like all of a a sudden you know restricting heavily for a month before that performance season like I know I don't want to go in that territory yeah you know I I just really appreciate how flexible, you know, your mindset is around nutrition and that not only is it individualized, of course, but it's like we live in, we should live in this gray area. And for whatever reason with diet, we, we want to find these like extremes. And um, there's just so much more nuance in the gray area. And we can all level up our performance um, by, by dialing things in within that range. So Thank you, Caitlin. This has just been awesome. We've only scratched the surface. We'll have to do this again. But I want to wrap up here by talking about um, the things that you're working on and that you're passionate about beyond rock climbing and, you know, specifically your business as a nutritionist, as the dirtbag nutritionist. So tell me what you're working on and, of course, how we as listeners and as athletes and climbers can work with you if we'd like to. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly in my business, I'm, I'm very passionate about helping people. And I, I, I certainly like to work with athletes because I think a lot of us even forget that even when you're a weekend warrior, you're still an athlete and that's lost in translation for many of us. And I think we need to fuel more like athletes because ultimately that's, that I think that'll help us go into training and performance season just with a little bit more confidence and assuredness that we're we're doing what we can to feel our absolute best. We deserve mm-hmm. it. So I I do work one-on-one with people uh, anywhere from one to three months or longer. You can schedule a call. There's totally no pressure to work together afterwards, but sometimes that's what makes the difference for athletes in just understanding simple solutions that they may not have seen, you know, as they're going through the motions of of daily life. And also, I'm going to hook up your listeners with a code for my self-paced program, Empowered, which covers a lot of the the basics of nutrition, you know, beyond just macros and micros. It goes into meal planning, mindset, intuitive eating, all that good stuff, in addition to sports nutrition. So these are usually the the hot topics in my one-on-one coaching, but certainly it's, I think if you are someone who likes self-paced coaching or you like your own self-audit, you, you know, you do your own research and you want to know more, this is your go-to stop for that. Yeah, that's super exciting. Well, well, thanks for hooking up the struggle listeners and just for putting really valuable content out there. Absolutely. Anytime. I love talking about struggles. (laughs) That's great. Well, I think this has earned me another donut. Absolutely. Go re-donut. And that wraps up our chat with the dirtbag nutritionist, Caitlin Holmes. What did y'all think of her analysis? Do you have any questions? Cool. Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at dirtbag nutritionist, at Ryan Devlin outside, and at the Struggle Climbing Show. 
So my big takeaways from this look back on season one through the lens of nutrition are one, pros struggle with nutrition just like the rest of us. Whether it's a lack of an overall plan, which pretty much everyone seemed to struggle with, or wrestling with a sweet tooth, or just knowing when to try to peak and when to relax. And two, you know, it's rarely black and white when it comes to nutrition, as Caitlin really pointed out so well. The gray area is where most of the good stuff happens. Nutrition can be a secret weapon for all of us to level up our climbing game, and nobody else's plan is gonna work for us. We need to dial in what works for us. And fortunately, we don't have to crack that code ourselves. You guys can work with Caitlin one-on-one, -on -one, or you can sign up for her awesome self-guided program and get empowered. Caitlin's offering you 20% off her empowered course, so check the show notes for that info. And you can also head over to CaitlinHolmes.com to book a clarity call with her and just kind of learn about how you can tackle your nutrition in a cool way. So check that out and she will get you set up. And speaking of nutrition, y'all, shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, created by climbers for climbers. Guys, it's just hands down the highest quality nutritional supplements you're gonna find to help level up your training and your climbing. Use code STRUGGLE15 to get 15% off your order at fizzyvantage.com. The link is in the show notes. Check it out. You are going to be psyched. Well, all right, that clips the anchors on this episode. If you appreciate the content we're putting out here, please consider supporting as a patron if you are able to do so. Maybe you're broke. I get it. It's cool. I was broke at one time. But if you're not broke and you can spare a few bucks a month to buy me and the team here a coffee so we can keep these shows going, We'd really appreciate it. We've got some really cool perks in the hopper and this show just wouldn't be possible without you. So pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and check it all out. I'd also be really grateful if you could just simply rate and review the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. Just post a grab of that review to Instagram and tag at the struggle climbing show and we will mail you a sticker 100% free of charge. Slap it on your stick clip, your Nalgene, your van or your forehead so that everyone knows that you love the struggle and the struggle loves you. I'm your host, Ryan Devlin, and this show was produced by myself and Mary Mathis with support from Emily Holland. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world.